Hello, everyone. My name is Robert Winfrey, and what you're about to listen to is an old episode of a podcast I used to host called Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. This is part two of our look at the James Bond franchise that myself and Pat Mullen did. This is also the third ever episode of Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. These particular episodes are not being re-released in the order that they were originally aired in, but rather to synergize with whatever happens to be going on in the network at the time. So this particular episode is designed to come out in conjunction with the Daniel Craig final, the final Daniel Craig installment of his turn as James Bond, the iconic 007, uh, No Time to Die, which will be featured on an episode of Damn You Hollywood, if you want to hear our full review of that particular movie. This episode focuses on probably the most modern two James Bonds, that being Pierce Brosnan and what Daniel Craig had done at the time. This episode originally aired May 17, 2013, so this will cover GoldenEye through Skyfall. As such, there is no discussion of Spectre. I can assure you, however, that had it come out, Pat and I would have had plenty of things to say about the structure of that movie and how you can cast as talented an actor as Christoph Waltz and then do so little with him in the role of arguably James Bond's most iconic adversary. But that's a discussion that was had on the Damn You Hollywood for Spectre, which you can also find in the archives if you're so inclined. Uh, Pat and I had a lot of fun talking about these two uh, franchise, these two episodes, one franchise. Uh, so before I send you to listen to that particular discussion, as a brief note of bookkeeping, let's pay some bills. First up, our first sponsor is Grammarly. For you listeners of the W2M network, you can uh, Grammarly is offering a free download of the Grammarly software. Grammarly's AI-powered products help people communicate more effectively. Couldn't we all use it? Grammarly helps you write mistake-free on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly anywhere else you write on the web. Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, and spelling mistakes while also catching contextual errors, improving your vocabulary, and suggesting style improvements. To download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com slash W2M network. Again, that is getgrammarly.com slash W2M network to download Grammarly for free. It's a tremendously useful tool. I encourage you all to do it. You get a free download. Give it a try. See if it helps. Our other, uh, our other sponsor for the evening is Amazon Music. The James Bond franchise has long been associated with some iconic songs, all of which, I'm pretty sure, are available on Amazon's extensive, exhaustive library of streaming music, over 70 million songs. If you're interested at all in that, and who isn't interested in free music, click the link below in the description or go to getamazonmusic.com w2mnetwork. Fill out the little form that says we're the ones that sent you over there, and you get started streaming all the music you can handle for 30 days for free. After that, if you like the service, you can keep it. If not, hey, you lost nothing. You lost nothing whatsoever. It is free. It costs nothing but a little bit of time. And then you get everything that Amazon has to offer musically. So, once again, get amazonmusic.com slash W2M network or the link that is down in the description below. And with that out of the way, let me throw it back to 2013. Myself and Pat Mullen talking about the most modern era of everyone's favorite British super spy, James Bond. Past me, take it away.
When the devil is too busy and that's a bit too much. They call on me by name, you see, for my special touch. To the gentleman, I'm his fortune. To the ladies, I'm surprised. But call me by any name, any way, it's all the same. I'm the fly in your suit. I'm the devil in your shoe. I'm the bee beneath your bed. I'm the bump on every head. I'm the pill on which you slip. I'm the pit in every head. I'm the thorn in your side. Makes you wiggle and ride. And it's so easy when you're evil. This is the life you see. The devil dips his hat to me. I do it all because I'm evil. And I do it all for free. Your tears are all the pay I'll ever need. Hello and welcome once again to Everyone Loves a Villain. I am your host, Robert Winfrey. Thank you for joining us again for another episode of this lovely podcast. Tonight, we are concluding our look at James Bond villains, and since we've got the same topic, I brought back the same mastermind, the man, the myth, the legend, the recently injured and currently not writing for 411 Mania anymore, he's Pat Mullen. How you doing, Pat? Uh, doing, doing pretty good, all things considered, Robert. Very excited to finish up our look at arguably the most iconic film series, Villains in all of creation. Hard to argue that point. He, Bond has transcended generations and genres, and he's everywhere. And even the even the crappy comedic stylings of Mike Myers can only do so much damage to the great James Bond. So we're looking at the new generation of Bond movies, starting with GoldenEye. We'll, we'll wrap up with Skyfall. I say the new generation... GoldenEye was the reintroduction or introduction of James Bond to an entire generation, myself. And, and they got things started off with an interesting villain, an interesting trio of villains, actually, because you have James Bond not just against the great Sean Bean as Alec Trevelyan. You've also got General Oromov. You've got Famke Jansen as Zenya Onatop. You've got the whole. You, you got a bunch of villains. You've got a brand new James Bond. You've got a it's been multiple years. You got a brand new generation of film goers ready to be exposed to James Bond on the big screen. Pat, talk to me about Goldeneye. Your experiences with that. Talk to me about your thoughts of the villain, the movie itself, and how James Bond reemerged on the big screen as a powerhouse. Yeah, you know, Goldeneye. You and I are not too far in age apart in age, Robert. And Goldeneye was the first time I got to see a James Bond film in theaters when it was initially released. And man, I was blown away by it at the time. And even today when I watch it, it's still such a great James Bond movie, definitely one of my top five. And a lot of that for me has to do with the character of Alex Trevelyan, as great as he was played by Sean Bean. And he he's I think really he's become to this generation, our generation, who's a little bit younger of a Bond fan, kind of thus far and arguably up until Skyfall, the definitive villain for James Bond to an extent because he's very much what James Bond could have become if he really just got fed up with how MI6 did business and what they've done to him on more than one occasion in terms of, you know, taking things away from him. And Trevelyan, you know, his motivation, it's, it's something that, you know, you do need a little bit of historical context to understand. And I don't think the film did enough to really put that forth. Trevelyan's parents and, grand and ancestors were part of the Cossack reprogramming initially that eventually led to Russian supporters of the Axis powers during World War II 
being put into prison camps and beaten severely by British soldiers. And really when it wasn't anything that they were truly against Britain, they were more against the fascist and communist Russia than all of the injustices that were happening against their own people at the time. So it's not as though his motivation is a hard one to understand and how MI6 was involved in that and that he'd want to take vengeance out on for what his people and his family had to suffer. The problem is, like any villain, he just goes too far with it and decides that innocent lives are just collateral damage and acceptable law. But he's motivated, he's dangerous because he's a double O agent, just like Bond, which really, even more than Scaramanga presented a physical equal, that's even more of a danger to Bond because this is a guy who's had the same training, gone through the same program, knows the same people, knows the same tools of the trade. And that's really what made him such a great villain to kind of almost reboot James Bond for a generation. They had to match him very difficult, and they succeeded. And to surround him with the supporting cast he had really helped bring out characteristics of Bond that I think had gone dormant in the film series because they had gone to a darker tone. You know, Xenia we talked about, played by Samka Johnson, she is, you know, kind of Trevelyan's torture administrator, and the writer character that she's almost like a bondage sadomasochistic type where she gains pleasure from torture. And so, of course, you know, Bond gets all the goods, and when he finally gets the drop on her and kills her, it's all been for naught, and Bond gets everything he wanted and more, which is just, you know, that's the kind of stuff you needed to reintroduce him, and you need a quality villain who can bring that out. So you have Xenia bringing about the qualities that made Bond cool to, you know, people who want look, and you have Trevelyan, who really kind of shows you just what Bond is capable of when he's pushed against as dangerous a foe as there can be. I agree that those that was a very good trio that they had there. You had you, you actually had a dangerous female character, and while you'd had female females opposing Bond in the past, I couldn't quote you specific movies, but there were the knife-throwing twins in the circus. There were others that, but they always felt kind of gimmicky, and when... Zenya dropped out of that helicopter. Sorry, what was that? And usually they wound up changing sides after Bond seduces them at some point. That's true. That, yeah, I mean, how many of them started out on the other side and wound up helping Bond in the end? But when she drops out of that helicopter when they're in the jungles of Cuba, and you know, it's not something to sneeze at. It, she, this is a legitimate threat that Bond is facing at that point. And for her to be able to come across as that, yeah, as a woman, and be that much of a threat to James Bond, of all people, that was well written and very well acted on her part. And, of course, you have the drunkard, not really drunkard, but you have the guy who drinks from a flask as he's being chased by James Bond in a tank. You have Oromov. I still can't get that sequence of James Bond chasing them in a tank, and he's looking out the back window and taking a swig from his flask. That always <laughs> sticks in my mind. And Matthew of Botchamania used that on a couple of his Botchamania installments, and I thought it was hilarious when he the way he was able to do that. Nothing says Sabu like all of a sudden making a quick cut to a flask with a tank chase. It's true. It's so true. Especially when right before that he implores his driver to use the bumper because that's what it's for. So your overall impressions of Goldeneye, you said it's one of your favorites. It's absolutely one of my favorites. You do have a great villain. I like that scene. One of my personal favorite scenes in that is when they get the, he gets the, he specifically gets the watch from James Bond and holds it up next to his own and says, 
Ah, new model. Is it still this button that turns it off and disables it? This is clearly a guy who's on James Bond's level, who's ahead of him in some ways because he's been able to plan everything out. And I think we'd be remiss if we didn't, as far as villains go, talk about the scrawny little computer hacker. I am invincible. Yes, who was then doused in liquid nitrogen. Yeah, it turns out he wasn't. Well, poor Boris. Poor Boris. Funny thing about liquid nitrogen, actually, this plays into a couple of other movies that I might want to get to later on, but actually a frozen body will not shatter if dropped from height. It will bounce. Keep that in mind, people. If you're trying to dispose of a body, don't drop it from height. Use a hammer after you've frozen it in liquid nitrogen. For all the villains and buddies. True. Now, GoldenEye, big hit. Everything about it was successful. Unfortunately, from villains and a villainy perspective, you go from... Alex Trevelyan, one of the best up to this point in time. Two in the next one, and I get the name fi- and I get some of the names mixed up as far as these ones go because some of them they blend together a little bit. But Tomorrow Never Dies. Elliot Carver, mass media mode, wants to create a war. That's his whole gimmick. He wants to generate a war. He wants to cover it. He wants to get rich off of it. He doesn't like Bond because his wife used to be with Bond. I mean, can you really hold that against her at this point in time? It's James Bond. You shouldn't have that level of jealousy and be a rational person but he's also a villain so he's not expected so Elliot Carver and his henchman the German the big blonde young Dolph Lundgren type guy how far did we fall here Pat how far how far did villainy in general and kind of the series as well fall with this I'll say this I, I liked I liked Stamper uh, the German henchman I, I thought his character was kind of a little bit of hearkening back to the days of Odd Job and, and those types of gimmicky you know henchmen but Without without really doing it for comedic overkill, I, I thought he was pretty decent, and I, I, I liked the way he was played. Very much the typical, uh, you know, Cold War, evil, Eastern Bloc villain. No emotion, big, strong, just, you know, icy. I, you know, Dolph Lundgren of the spy world. So I, I, I enjoyed that because it was a little bit of a throwback to the Cold War era of films, which had died out by this point. But, yeah, it, I suppose, hard. I suppose for my... My problem with that is a henchman can be okay. A lot of the henchman's success is predicated on the guy they're serving, the guy they're with, their mastermind. And that's one of the reasons I think Oddjob gets remembered so fondly is not just his own merits, bad guy from Goldfinger, which we talked about last time, but he's also paired with a great villain. And here you've got Elliot Carr. And seeing someone take orders from that guy, it, it, it kind of... It, it almost like diminishes them a little bit, I think. And feel free to disagree with me on that one. But no, that's kind of I, my, I, that's I kind can of my definitely see where you so. come from with that, Robert. Uh, he, the problem with Elliot Carver is, I think, I think this Bond film more than anything was kind of a victim of the studio system, where they saw how immensely successful Goldeneye was, and so immediately they needed to turn out another movie, and it suffers because where you had such a great crafted villain in traveling running things. They just went in the complete opposite direction. And again, we made comparisons in our last episode in certain respects to the Batman TV series where these villains were portrayed as very over-the-top and, you know, cartoony. And that's exactly what we get with Elliot Carver where there's a line, and unfortunately, you know, Jonathan Price is the actor who played him. I don't think he really was invested into this as a serious project. He looked like he was there for a payday and was just there to have fun. And I'm sure it was fun for him, but it wound up really taking away from what could have been done. But again, the motivation there was one that was trying to be topical of the times with, you know, the occupation of Hong Kong and who's going to get possession of it. And the, his, his ultimate goal is to kickstart this war between China and Great Britain. Yet, you know, for some reason it's going to make him rich. And then 
they tie in kind of a very odd subplot with, you know, his ex-wife being an ex-girlfriend of Bond. It, 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 it kind of diminishes everything because it, it feels very cheap to be thrown in there. And it, it gives I mean, kind I'm of a needless motivation. Being, personally, I'm all for Terry Hatcher being on screen. That's fine and dandy. But if you watch those sequences, she was actually a little bit bitter towards Bond as well, so it didn't make sense for him to be as you know jealous and possessive and whatnot as he was. You know, This wasn't someone falling back in with Bond. This was someone who was still you know, maybe a little bit ticked off at him because, I mean, you've got to imagine the trail of women Bond has left over the years. There's got to be some women who are pretty pissed off. There, there's definitely some ruffled feathers in there, you could imagine, but... You know, it, it, I, I understand maybe they just thought, okay, well, we need something to make it personal, and we need some kind of, you know, studios will often insist on some type of female love interest, whether it makes sense in the plot or not. And I have to believe this was another reason that I think this film was a victim of the studio system is because that subplot is so unnecessary to the entire film, you know, and it, it provides needless motivation. The guy is looking to kickstart a war between two major world powers over possession of, you know, basically an entire country. That's not enough motivation to really get you invested in why Bond has to stop him. You have to throw in a plot with an ex-girlfriend. It, you know, it, it goes from being James Bond to you know, almost like a high school revenge movie. Well, especially and, when they then introduce uh, the great Michelle Yeoh as the female James Bond from the Chinese secret, from the Chinese spy world, to be on Bond's level and to help him take down everyone, which, I mean... You know, like I said, I'm all for Terry Hatcher being on screen and getting work, and she's lovely, but she wound up being a bit redundant here because you went, you got such a much more compelling, dynamic character out of Michelle Yeoh than you did out of Terry Hatcher. Yeah, and, and again, it kind of made Carver, who's got this ultimately evil scam in place, you know, really, you're going to start, you could start a world war, basically, because the allegiance is involved. But he's mad because he's talking to his wife? Yeah. Her, his wife's ex-suitor is talking to her again? That's really what drives him over the edge? That that just really, it, it, it's so undermining to the greater scheme of things that Carver becomes even more of a joke of a villain at that point. He, he's entering caricature territory at that point to be, oh, I'm, I don't care how many lives are ruined, I want to start a war, I own all these media conglomerates i'm the biggest name in media i'll get rich off of all the coverage which i mean to be fair he would i mean that but that's a sound logical plan i make money off of news off of news rights off of the commercials off of all that so i need to generate news i don't just report the news i make the news which is a big issue was a big issue at the time and in some ways still is as far as in the media world and especially with news and mass media right now you have people reporting, you know, cr creating stories to report on. I mean, you have to imagine that if they did this same gimmick, you'd have them doing... You, you, this guy would have to own TMZ at some point just so you could have him slamming <laughs> Harvey Levin. I mean, that's the impression I get as far as that. It's really sad because, you know, I, I, I know he's based on Robert Maxwell, the character of Ellie Carter, but as you're saying this, I'm just seeing it in my head develop, and it's scary because it's so accurate that it's so easy to see it play out. He's standing up there in front of it. He could walk in with the sippy cup and go, so what do we got this? I mean, it's you should not have a villain, a true villain, especially someone like that, kind of create that mental image as far as that goes. And it's sad because he's a fine act, and the role, and that particular role, you know, the media mogul is generating his own stories, is creating all of this havoc and chaos. It could be well done, but I think you're right. I think this was the studio, a lot of this was the studio... We need to get another Bond movie out. We need to get it out quickly. 
let's just go with whatever we've got. Yeah, part of so, which is, you know, because of the lapse in time between where we're kicking off this show, Goldeneye, and License to Kill, it was a six-year gap, which I believe was to that point the longest gap between Bond films that had ever happened as soon as they kicked off Neon Productions with Dr. No. So I, I think they were just desperate at that point that they felt maybe this is a chance to make a very marketable, franchisable character relevant again. We cannot waste this opportunity. So they jumped on it, and what ultimately is not a terrible idea and not a terrible motivation for a villain, just, you know, like I said, it got undermined from the start, and I think everybody kind of realized it for the most part, including the people involved. Like, like poor Jonathan Price had a chance for a really what could have been a breakout role in his career, and I think when he saw what was happening, he kind of knew that no matter how he plays this, he's not going to come out ahead, so he might as well just go full tilt with it. And he did, and, you know, I, I can... I can kind of see why, it, but it didn't really do anything for him, and that's unfortunate because it's a very prominent role in a huge franchise, and you wish things would have worked out better for him on it. It's true, and this whole script feels like what they wound up filming was like a third or fourth draft as opposed to a finished product. There's some needless twists and turns as far as the plot goes, and you've got and it, it just didn't feel like a fully fleshed out movie from what I can recall of seeing it. I only rewatched parts of it in preparation for this, but no, they, they really don't follow through much, and it kind of there's no transition. There's no transitioning from pl from you know plot A to subplot B. It's it's very much all over the place and doesn't have a clear direction throughout. That's maybe its biggest problem. Certainly doesn't help it when you have those kinds of problems. Okay, here's if we move on to the next one, and the next one kind of goes back to I think this is we're talking about the world is not enough. This one has I think. To that point, another good villain. You have a gimmick, a James Bond gimmicky villain, but one that at least makes sense. It's not overdone. It's not metal hands. It's not, I want to write my name in the moon. You get Renard, who has no sense of touch. How did that play for you when you, as far as the character goes, the acting, the way the story played out? Here's a guy who can't feel anything, can't feel pain, can't feel good, bad. He's just He's got a bullet in his head that's slowly killing him. How did that play out for you? How did Renard play out? I'm glad they went the way with it that it did. Rather than make it an overly physical, you know, gimmick where he's doing things like walking through fire and laughing or just to taunt you, he's, you know, letting himself be fired at with an M16, you know, and just walking through it like he's invincible, as Boris would say. They did it more as a psychological aspect in, you know, the plot details with Elektra and kind of, you know, his his whole demeanor as an ex-KGB agent who became a terrorist. And again, poor, poor Soviets, because they, they just take such a beating in these movies as the most evil people alive. <laughs> we need a villain. Let's go to somebody who's pissed off from the Cold War. And he, he's another part of that, but he, he, gets, he gets a little more play rather than being the silent one-note thug who's very big, as we saw in the last movie. He's, he's really kind of, you, you see his, him losing sense of touch with reality as, you know, his his sense of touch physically further dulls, which I think was very well developed and as an idea. I, I like that aspect of it more because it gives you something more general to, more than the generalized, oh, he's got a gimmick up, he can't feel anything. So he can break his hand and you can punch him and that's it. You know, he's still got to figure out a way to beat him physically. This really had more to do with his mental state and the, the deviation of his plans and where he'd wanted to go with things and, ultimately why he's such a cold guy and why his actions throughout the film get progressively more erratic, violent, and 
I like that. I thought that was well-developed. I agree. That sequence after Alexa turns on Bond when she's sitting there with him and says, you know, well, surely you can feel these different, she's got like the eyes playing with it, and he's sitting there, and it it almost instead of, I mean, she's, Electra King has her own issues, and I do want to talk about her in a very brief second, because the female Bond villain, it felt like they needed another one going into this, because they didn't have one in the last movie, and it was done fairly well, but she's clearly doing it for her own kind of bizarre reasons, and he's sitting there, and you can see it in his eyes that he's slowly, no, I can't feel anything, no, no. and it's slowly dawning on him that you're seeing like a a microcosm of what happens to his character throughout the whole movie. He just slowly becomes unwound, and I I like that sequence and how it plays with his, uh, you, you get a glimpse into the world that he was living in and how his mind, so as we just talked about, Electra King, Bond villain, female, Bond villain slash Bond girl. How did she play for you? How did her betrayal of Bond, the storyline behind her, that whole thing, how did she read for you as a as far as a Bond villain? You know, this was one of the Bond films I had to go ahead and rewatch when we were going to do this because I, I, I didn't really have strong memories of it as it had happened. I remember being, okay, well, you know, one of the two main villains in this, and she's not like a B villain, she's an A-level villain. It's a girl, and that hadn't really been fully developed. Xenia in the last, in uh, GoldenEye had been, you know, the clear B villain of the group where Trevelyan was the mastermind. She was almost like the hench. Straddles the line between, like, Bond girl, henchman, and villain, but she, I think if you're going to err on that, she's more of his henchman the same way that kind of odd job was Goldfinger. Xenia was Terrell, was Terrellan's you know, henchman, as opposed to necessarily being the mastermind, the bad guy, the one who has yeah. the ultimate goal. Yeah, there's a difference between a henchman and really Electra was more of a partner to Renard, and not just in the physical sense of them being lovers, but in terms of the motivation and what levels they were going to with the plan. She wasn't just there as like a plot device, she was a legitimate villain, and I thought that was really something that could be a great thing. But as I watched it again, I think the idea of you know, the whole, it's kind of an incestuous tie between her and Reynard and MI6, and I think the problem is that they just had too much going on with that to really understand Electra's motivations thoroughly. Basically what happens is uh, Electra's father uh, was very, you know, rich oil Oil magnate. Yeah, and Reynard kidnapped Electra to ransom her and, you know, get a substantial payment out of her father, MI6 advised, you know, her father not to pay up, which in turn caused her to react very coldly and be pissed off at her father and then go ahead and with her execute her revenge plot with Renard against her father and against MI6 and, you know, for the better part of against the world. But I think I think they just, whereas the last film was kind of underdeveloped and thrown together at the last minute, I think they put too much thought into just how much they could tie into this story. And I think she suffers for it. Uh Sophie Marceau is a fairly inexperienced actress who got put into a very big role. And while I think she does okay, she's not outstanding to me, she's not poor, I think she's really hurt by just how just how developed the story is because just to focus on her, you almost forget about Reynard's plan and his plot and his involvement as kind of the feature villain. And part of me wishes that, they... There's a part of me that wishes they would have just gone the other way with it, have her reveal be... She's the mastermind, she's the big bad one, and he's actually her henchman. Just if you, Instead of convoluting it with them being partners and working like, just go the, go whole hog, make her the bad guy. And I think it would have tightened up some of the aspects of that as far as you know who's in charge, 
who's benefiting all of that. I would have liked to see that. If for no other reason than because it would have been different than the direction they were going. A tad convoluted. Yeah, I think I think when we look at these villains and we file some under, you know, uh, great, some under duds, I think I think when we look at Electra, she's going to be a villain who we would file under, you know, unfulfilled potential. Because I think there was a lot of good in that character and, and having a strong female lead villain to oppose Bond. But we just didn't get it delivered upon. It's, it's almost, you know, like a, a promising fighter who has a great career ahead of them and all of a sudden gets into a terrible car wreck and loses, you know, uh, years of their life and can't go on fighting. And they lose it. So, Electric King is the... Been. So Electric King is the Frank Mir and or Magnum TA of James Bond. I'll definitely go ahead with the Magnum TA reference for sure. Uh, I can't consent to the Mir one, but Magnum TA would be the perfect. Old school NWA pro wrestling. We touch on everything, baby. Okay, and I do need to, I did like Renard. I have to say, Bond killing Electra, one of my favorite Bond kills. Because she clearly thinks, I mean, she says it, you won't shoot me. And you get a sense, you get... That moment when Brosnan shoots, you're tapping a bit back into kind of that edgy, cold killer that Bond is, and I think you you like you like the Timothy Dalton version of James Bond, and I think that's part of the reason why is he was able to convey that type of edge as far as that goes. So I don't know. Did you like it? Her death, meaningful Bond shooting her, saying "I never miss," gets the one-liner in. How that? I, I did, and even even the one-liner didn't feel cheap to me because. At the end of the day, what are we talking about here? You know, we're talking about the, su- the supreme British equivalent of our, own, of our own CIA here in the States. And what are the CIA? They are spies and killers. You know, this is what they do. This is a cold business. You can't, be, you can't have a conscience in this game, really. And, you know, Bond at times, he gets made almost, and especially in the Roger Moore films, into too much of like a, fl- a, a fluffy kind of nondescript, you know, I won't kill unless I absolutely have to kind of guy. That's not in the job description, and so that's a lot of why I like Timothy Dalton's portrayal, and I enjoyed seeing a little bit of the heart of that in this when Bond finally does, you know, shoot Electra and take her out. It made absolute sense, and it's something that was missing in too many of the Bonds. I also think part of the importance of that is how Bond delivers that I never miss line. It's almost like an afterthought. It's something he says that almost seems to surprise himself a little bit and that, oh, wait, I just shot this poor young woman and I still have a one-liner. But it, I, I think the delivery of that is absolutely perfect. And I personally enjoyed Brosnan as a, as James Bond, a great... I, I do, and I think part of, part of that mind, too, that we can go into a little bit with, with the relationship that was there with Electra, where they, they actually did get together during the movie. She does kind of play the role of Bond girl in it for a little while. It's almost you have to question, you know, is he a little bit hurt by this or is he, you know, just kind of happy that he played her and she seems a little bit more hurt and surprised by this because she's dead now. It could go a a bunch of different ways. The whole, I mean, if you want to get, you know, into the psychology of that, you have a very traumatized young girl. You have James Bond who's got his own issues. And it seems like, you know, we talked about her being a what might have been villain, lost potential. That whole relationship between them it seems like they both realized to some degree you know this could have gone so much differently if things had been just a little bit different and that's kind of both how they react to it there's the, the tragic element that i think is played up very well I so going agree. from going from renard to oh boy to the real villain of this film madonna yes oh boy gustav graves the british billionaire slash north korean colonel slash diamond face slash miranda frost Slash, this is almost Mr. Freeze level of bad pun. We got to talk about it. We're going through all of them. 
And there's going to be some bad ones. This is one of them. Let's put our heads down and plow through it. Gustav Graves, talk to me, baby. What's going up? What's up with this movie? Oh, God, I wish I knew because I'm still trying to figure it out. It, it, it's almost sad in the Brosnan series, and this is where Brosnan's last role came from, in that every film is, you know, a big step forward and two steps back right afterward. And this one I don't think is any exception. Uh, Gustav Graves, you alluded to the fact that he was a North, a North Korean who underwent some type of odd digital, uh, you know, changeover to appear as a British man. And the whole thing is that he's going to take back South Korea by force as if that plan will actually smoothly be executed in a matter of seconds. And we talked about uh, uh, Tomorrow Never Dies trying to be topical in, in what it was doing. And it's funny because with the current North Korea situation, excuse me, this becomes actually quite topical. And it was topical then too, but it, it, it it's way too out there for what they were trying to establish with the broad and the, in the broad. And it, it it's almost as if they want to kind of put Bond on the back burner as a missionary of MI6 and having him just be a freelancer so they could go into these ridiculous developments and kind of just make things as odd and crazy and out there as possible. We talked about Moonraker being a fun science fiction movie but not necessarily a great Bond movie. This is neither a great Bond movie nor a good science fiction movie. This is, this is just odd choices resulting in a villain who nobody seems to care about and and it's just so farcical that it it makes you know it makes just about any bad bond villain we've gone through look like blowfeld to this point it honestly the you know the le- we have to talk about it but the less we do i think the better we we are i agree i, I mean everything about this movie is just not great from miranda frost turning on james bond Halle Berry as the Bond girl, Gustav Graves actually being North Korean, the guy. The one thing I did like was the visual they achieved with the hench who was going through the genetic sequencing procedure, whatever, to look. I mean, you can argue that that whole thing is a slight bit racist, that all these other races wish to look Caucasian. But he's going through the procedure, Bond interrupted, and he gets the diamonds embedded in his skin, and he's now like a, ge- a genetic shell. He's bald. He's very pale. I liked the visual that they achieved with that, but everything else about it just really fell flat. Yeah, I mean, even even the motivation of the villain, which is a lot of times what we talk about is the success point for the villain. You know, his, his ultimate goal is to go through the demilitarized Korean zone with a beam of concentrated sunlight from a satellite that would let North Korea invade South Korea and reunite the countries by force. As if that's going to happen as soon as this is over. Like there's going as to if be there no wasn't resistance. already a large war fought over it and wouldn't be another one. Yeah. Yeah, they just completely ignore history and ignore what would happen currently as if several other nations who are involved in this wouldn't step in to aid South Korea and probably beat North Korea, if we're being very honest. At that particular point in time, this was before they really had their nuclear program online. Yeah. Absolutely. The whole thing, I I almost feel like elements of that story would read better in today's sociopolitical environment than they did back then. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, there's a little bit of foreshadowing because at the time, you know, people in the know and who very, you know, who were very well read in the news knew that North Korea, there were a lot of tensions brewing still at that point, but they were actually in development of trying to armor themselves up to be able to compete as a world power should there be a war. But this is just, you know, completely disregarding everything about the time. And, you know, I'd almost be more insulted if I was from South Korea 
because the, the line is just drawn that immediately as soon as North Korea gets through, they're taking you out. You have nothing. You are nobodies. And the only thing you can say is the landmines. We don't have our own military. We don't have our own allies. We'll fall, o- we'll fall over like the French if someone tries to invade. Yeah, and, and again, to go back to your point of you know, people turning themselves into Caucasians, this film is just a disaster on so many levels and so you know, offensive and not just in a racial standpoint, but offensive to its audience to try to make it follow it. I mean, it should say something when the, North, the big North Korean general, the father of the colonel who turned into Gustav Graves, looks at his son trying to do this and says, you know, you're going a bit too far here. You know, I, I'm all for people who are on the opposite side of the aisle as far as the good and bad guys having a limit, having some humanity. I'm fine with that. This is the type of thing that he is almost like speaking for the audience when he kind of goes, you know, Sorry, you've lost. It, 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 that, that, again, is another point where you, you've got, you know, what's the motivation then behind, you know, his father at that point? Dude, North Korea has a power. He's a general. Clearly, he wants to bolster the forces. But then all of a sudden, no, we're going too far with bolstering. We only want, you know, it's almost like I want a guy who goes to the gym. Yeah, I want to lose a little bit of weight, but I don't want to get all bulky. It, that's the best comparison I can draw. And it, it just comes off as so ridiculous in the context. Like, nothing, nothing about it makes sense. It, yeah, it, it's very sad, especially because, you know, a, a, bond, a good Bond villain without a followable plan or a cohesive goal, I mean, even if this were a half-decent Bond villain, which, I, I'll be honest, Graves, when, we, when I first thought about ranking Bond villains, I didn't put him on because I forgot about him. That says about all that needs to be said about this. Yeah, I, 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 honestly, if I didn't go ahead and relook through the films and try to call Thomas, I, he wouldn't have occurred to me from my memory. I would have put Carver and probably uh, Christopher Walken at the bottom. But then this guy comes along in between, and he, make, he elevates Carver. I mean, come on, Elliot Carver looks like an infinitely better villain with a more cohesive and thought-out plan than this. Not good, not good, not good, not good, not good. Yeah, and unfortunately the Brosnan series, and the, you know, Pierce Brosnan was great, but his series ends with a whimper and not a bang. Very, very true. Very sad. And it's very sad that Desmond Lillian went out on this one. Or did yeah, he go out on the one last before? Film I forget. Too, wasn't it? What? This was the last film for Desmond Llewellyn. Uh, as Q. Oh, man. That's, no, no, no. He was the one before it. Uh, John Cleese is R in this one. Oh, R. That's right. So John Cleese went out on actually a pretty positive note. Or not John Cleese, Desmond Lowen. Great cue. Greatest cue. And I loved the kid they got for Skyfall, which we'll get to in a bit. I loved his exit, too. He tells him, I've always, I've always told you to have a good exit strategy, which is funny because it's something Bond never has. He's always getting out by the skin of his teeth. And Q just very deliberately pushes a button and sinks into the floor into his retirement. But enough about Brosnan. Enough about that very sad movie. Enough about Madonna being involved in James Bond. Enough of... The pomp, the pageantry, all of the stuff that kind of got exploded by the Austin Powers. Casino Royale, the, I think, third version of that particular story. There was a television episode. There was the one with Orson Welles as Le Chiffre, which we talked a little bit about last time. Daniel Craig, new James Bond. Judy Dench, still M. Mads Mikkelsen, the man who cries blood. How'd the, how did Casino Royale go for you? How did that whole thing play out? Talk to me about the reboot, essentially. We go from gadgets and watches to a couple of Bond things to James Bond kind of aping Jason Bourne in some respect. How did this whole thing go for you? Talk to me specifically. Let's talk about Le Chiffre. Let's talk about the great Mads Mikkelsen doing great things on television right now as Hannibal Lecter. How'd that whole thing go for you? Which I still need to catch up on because I hear great things, but 
Yeah, Lashiva is portrayed as this kind of uber, uh, you know, backer of terrorism and profiteers from it, and that's why he keeps doing it. Because oftentimes they don't explain, like, why people are involved. He makes money off of terrorism. That's a good enough motivation right there in a world with a downturn economy to understand why somebody would do something. Money. It's money yeah. is the universal language. The, the motivation to get rich always resonates. Everybody speaks. But uh, they also add little parts to his background as far as him being, you know, a mathematical, you know, brilliant student who can project odds and count things in his head, which, you know, leads into the card game, obviously, or the Baccarat. Uh, it's Texas Hold'em in this one. It, it is Texas Hold'em, right? Okay, I'm, I'm reading into the novel on that one, but... Yeah, oh, yeah, no, James, Bond plays James, Bond, James Bond plays Baccarat in every book and in every movie until we get one that's released during the height of the poker boom, in which case it's now text. But that whole poker yeah. scene is the low point of the movie for me in a lot of ways. I don't think poke. I don't think most. I don't think most poker reads well as a cinematic device most of the time. I mean, there are a couple of exceptions, but as a general rule, I don't think it's a great. I'd have it be like that. But if that's the low point, it's still a pretty effective. Yeah, and, and again, you know, it was to kind of capitalize on a certain boom at the time with the game with Texas Hold'em. But you know, the Sheffer kind of gets more development than you than you get with the standard Bond villain because aside from his interest in terrorism and how he likes to play games of chance further, and he's so good at them. You know, he's got a plan as a kind of a, almost a Wall Street-style terrorist, where they're get, he's going to invest money from Quantum to an aircraft manufacturer called Skyfleet, because the shares have been going up and up and up, and what he's going to do is, you know, he's going to buy the company's put options and order the destruction of its airliner, and, and just, you know, basically from this company and burn it from the inside out like Gordon Gecko would. You know, and unfortunately... Bond does that, does what he does best, and ruins that plan. And so Le Schieffer sets up this tournament to try to get the money back before his bosses learn that he misappropriated the funds, and he doesn't wind up with egg on his face and a bullet in his head. So Le Schieffer's got a pretty clear motivation here. As he's, he's a not bad just guy. getting rich; he's also a very vulnerable Bond villain in a lot of. I mean, and, that scene when I forget the actor's name, but the Africans. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but he the your introduction to him. He's selling this African warlord on his services as a banker. And they, after they kind of realize what's happened, they ambush him in his hotel room and are going to cut his head off. He's not the all-powerful, aloof Bond villain that you get in some of the others. This is a guy who is well aware that his life is at, is at risk. Yeah, and I'll, I'll say this. I think they did a good job at portraying that, but I think they went over the top with his, uh, his you know, his condition that causes him to cry blood. I understand that they wanted the visual and that they really wanted to you know, show that he's vulnerable, but I think the plot does enough of that and to the point where the tears of blood, really, it's, it's almost kind of too gimmicky for me. And again, I'm nitpicking there because he's still such a well-developed villain and he's you know, very much in Bond's face the whole time during the card game and doing well and that's, that, to me, is almost more interesting at this point than the physical conflicts you've gotten because this time Bond's mind is being tested more than anything else because those Brosnan films had really kind of developed into just strict action, 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 action without a whole lot of intellect behind them. And this kind of still gives you action, but it gives you meaningful intellectual battles, which are, when they're done right, mean every bit as much and entertain you just as much. And I think that's mainly what this was. I agree. I love... I, lo I loved the character. I loved the idea behind him. I loved the way Mads Mikkelsen did it. This was a very 
I'm glad that he got as much work as he did out of it. And like I said, he's doing great things on television as Hannibal Lecter right now, which is a really that's not easy. I mean, we've seen one other. We've seen there are technically two other people besides Anthony Hopkins who have tried to do it. Brian Cox did a decent job in Manhunter as the Scottish version of Hannibal Lecter. For those of few of you who saw that movie, he did okay. Did not like the guy from Hannibal Rising, uh, Gaspard Ulliel, I believe was his name. He's actually uh, been able to do something with the role and not just look like he's trying to copy Anthony Hopkins. So my kudos to him. When I talk about, I'm going to have one of these on Hannibal Lecter eventually, and we'll have to discuss his portrayal of that at more depth in more depth at that point. But Le Chivre, definitely a good Bond villain. I mean, I love the scene that he's torturing James Bond in. That is one of... It's kind of a callback to the scene where uh, where Goldfinger has Bond strapped to the table and he's ready to cut him in half with that very slowly moving laser. I mean, the comically slow moving laser that's been aped in all kinds of things and all kinds of genres. You have, this is going to kill you for sure. It just moves really, 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 really slowly. <laughs> and, and you know what? Don't think... You know, we can't think that's not intentional. It's definitely... An homage of sorts, but it's also kind of a, to almost update that and make it playable to today's audience too. It's true, and I, you know, that's another thing. As far as that, when he says, you know, I don't go in for fancy torture devices; it's not that necessary. You know, that 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 whole sequence is something that any guy can sit there and go, you know, yeah, I'd be cracking about. So, moving on though, unfortunately. Because we go from the reintroduction of the Bond villain with a minor gimmick with the crying blood, a great portrayal, a great clear motivation, everything about Le Chiffre is awesome, to Quantum of Solace. I don't hate Quantum of Solace as a movie. I don't... But you hate eco-terrorism. I don't even hate eco-terrorism as a plot device. I hate poorly developed, poorly acted characters. So, for those of you, brief summary, James Bond is now, after the death of Vesper Lind, he's out for revenge, more or less. He wants to take down Quant, this multinational group. They're eco-terrorists. They want to control things, make money. I I don't like the fact that they made this whole organization as the villain and then didn't give it an effective head, an effective avatar. Because we got, what, Dominic Green? I believe was it was Mr. Yes. Green. Dominic Green, Not, who works in reforestation. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, oh, sorry, the names in this one were worse. As far, if, if you want to look at bad gimmicks as far as... Bond villains go, the names for Quantum of Solace. Not, and then there's the evil, sadistic Colombian general who's thrown in there for the purposes of giving Olga Kirilenko someone to kill. And again, I'm all for Olga Kirilenko. But this movie didn't have the same type of punch that you got out of Casino Royale, specifically, I think, because you didn't have someone opposing Bond. You had Bond out for revenge on a rampage. And he didn't have any, he had this group to go after, but they didn't have anything to really oppose him with. I mean, the only reason there's any modicum of tension during the final shootout is you're not sure if Olga Kirilenko is going to survive to kill the general or if Bond is going to do it. He himself is never in danger. So weaknesses and of Solace, the villains, Mr. Green, Mr. White, all of that. Talk to me about that. Well, aside from sounding like James Bond takes on Reservoir Dog. Which it's, would be a know. great movie. Ter- they need, we, we need to get Tarantino to make that movie. Remake Reservoir Dogs, James Bond comes in and shoots everyone at the end. You know, they, they really hit you over the head with, you know, I talked about them making it obvious with, with Le Chiffre to make him vulnerable to the tears of blood. The reforestation eco-terrorist named Green, uh, you know, come on. That, that immediately is kind of insulting to the intelligence of everyone watching the movie. But but then again, the, the, the problem that they make is that Green is supposed to be your lead villain, 
and he feels like the B-plot of the movie behind Bond's quest for vengeance after Vesper Lynn died. And they don't commit really... They commit so much of the movie to Green's plot, while the real motivation of Bond is put on the back burner, that you leave, you find yourself not really caring either way about what's going to happen. And as a result, there's no drama involved. And that's what hurts, because Green is never a villain who makes you believe he's going to succeed. There's never a point where you're really caring about what he's trying to do more so than bond on a silly little personal revenge quest, which, again, in the business he's in, you're not supposed to have. And, and you know, it, 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 we've had Bond movies that go too all over the place. This was one that was two very clear directions, and neither one of which was made clear with consequences that are going to matter, why Bond should care. It, it's You're running down the street, and you trip over uh, some debris that was left on the sidewalk, and you pick it up and move it out of the way so nobody else trips over it. That's Bond going after Green to foil his plot. Yeah, he, he, uh, we talked a little bit about, in the first one, the the plague of the incidental villain, people who happen to cross paths and wind up at odds. That's kind of where this goes, I feel. He wants to get after the people who killed Vesper. You know, I almost wish they would have just gone with Bond on a rampage. Give me a 90-minute version of the Archer Gets Cancer app. Let Bond go on a rampage. Let him drag Olga Kurilenko with him. Let Bond go on a rampage. Let's just shoot that instead of a bizarre plot about water rights and there's oil involved. We're going to bring this yeah, I don't want power. To and, under yeah, we need Terms of an Rampagement starring James Bond. I'd pay to see it. I'd, I'd much rather pay to see that than Gonzalez. Okay. On the plus side, we there is no, you know, there are, there are worse Bond villains than the Solace Group and Mr. Green. He's still better. He's still light years ahead of Gustav Gray. But suffers and will suffer forever because he is sandwiched between two of the best. Start with Le Chivre when you reboot this. You have some. You have the very intellectual personality. And what do you have in Skyfall? Who's the big bad in Skyfall? Mr. Oh. Raul Silva. Played by the great Javier Bardem. Raul Silva. I'll, I'll say this right now before everyone listening and everyone within the sound of my voice... My favorite Bond villain, hands down, Raul Silva, Javier Bardem. Everything about this was... Before we get into my gushing over it, I want to hear your take on him, his introduction, when the character comes in, his motivations, everything about it. Gush for me, Patrick, let's go. Let, let, let's heap praise upon Javier Bardem's portrayal of Raul Silva. Actual name, Riyad, uh, Rodrigo Tiago or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> After we gush, and then you can't even get his name right. No, but, uh, man, it's, what a great villain he was. It's very hard to pick against him as one of the best, if not the best. And it, it, what's interesting is almost the same way you don't see Blofeld introduced through a lot of his initial appearance. The main plot of Skyfall initially has you finding Bond dealing with this assassin named Patrice and, you know, chasing him all through uh, into South China. And really, you know that this is going to lead to something bigger. But they devote so much time to it while all this stuff is going on that... It well, plus really you've got makes... Bond physically and emotionally being a wreck after being shot. Coming back and he looks disheveled and he's not physically the man he used to be. Yeah, it's, it's you know, he can't pass his psychological test, he can't pass his physical test, but, you know, M being the stand-up person that, that she is, I'm going to pass you anyway. And you've got Ray Fiennes looking to take over. The great Ray Fiennes, by the way. Love his, love his work here and... His villainous work, we will devote episodes to later on some of them, I guarantee it. But moving on, you get to the island. You have the pseudo-Bond girl, former sex slave, who agrees to take James Bond to meet 
the big bad guy. They bring him to this deserted island that he took because he won, which is a great a great moment as far as that goes. This whole island is now deserted. And it's deserted because he told people there was a chemical spill. And he he just wanted an island, so he took this. They tie James Bond to the chair, and in the distance, the elevator doors open. Out steps blonde Javier Bardem, Mr. Raul Silva. And he gives that great speech about Rat. How'd that play for you as a Bond villain introduction? It's very different from a lot of the dramatic reveals that you tend to get with some Bond villains, where, you know, the chair turns around and there's Donald Pleasant, or Elliot Carver standing before his wall of monitors, or Alec Trevelyan stepping out of the shadows in the cemetery... This guy comes out of an elevator and very slowly walks across a room, slowly into focus. How did that read? I enjoyed it because I, I felt like they treated the situation differently to make it stand out because it's not the typical Bond villain you know, entrance. It's not something where the music crescendos and all of a sudden you see this either, you know, the, the spin around from the chair or the slow reveal of a hood, you know. He's not he's not some, you know, super megalomaniacal villain. He's he's very much again, we talk about it. One of the best motivations is a guy who was where Bond was and had things go wrong for him and this is what he could easily become. And Silva more than anyone really, even even Trevelin and, and we'll get into the comparison on that, but it it's it's such a it's such a, a really understandable villain. I don't think they needed all the pomp and circumstance the way they did before. The way the film has gone to this point you know this guy's a big bad. And so why, you know, why are they going to try to make and, and enforce that feeling that he, he's the big bad guy? You know it already, just from what you've had to deal with. So for him There's to one, step out... After they capture him, I was very struck by something, and what you just said kind of reinforces it. When he's in the... When he's been captured and he's in the, you know, hexag, the octagonal plexiglass thing, uh, cage and he's wearing the suit when he's in the prison garb and everything that whole sequence and this is odd to bring it up again but it reminded me of the introduction of Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs kind of that's the same feel that that whole thing had of this is someone you were surrounding with you know we want to lock this person away forever and never we, we don't want to feed him we don't want to deal with him we want him to be gone we don't wish this is something that's a mistake. Yeah, and that that makes, you know, that's what really makes him understood is how just how much they're dealing with here. You don't need that on a dramatic reveal. You don't need a, a, a very operatic piece or anything. When you see how, the extreme measures they take to, you know, keep this guy locked up, you know that, okay, this guy's a little bit different. Well, and his, his revenge motivation, as far as M goes, is also very simple, very easy to understand, and... That's another, you know, revenge and money. Two of the, you know, there's the old, there's the old saying about murder. Murder nine times out of ten, it's motivated by money, or revenge. And yeah, it's very, and it's a very universal language. And his scene with M there, I mean, the great Judy Dench finally gets some material to sink her teeth into as M. And M, she, M is made into a real person as opposed to the constant voice of command. Yeah. This was her mistake, kind of the way, kind of the way Bond, I think, looks back, looks back on Vesper Lind and views her as, you know, his great loss. I think M looks at how Tiago was handled, and that's her, you know, that's the one thing she always keeps in the back of her mind. Yeah, and you know, the whole plot that he's got ahead of him is to not only, you know, to take vengeance upon M, but he wants, as an extension, to embarrass Dix by embarrassing, you know, Bond and her, and showing this organization is a joke. And this is what I did to them when I got when I really wanted to. This is what I'm dealing with. This is they want to treat me like garbage. 
watch what I can do when I get motivated, and I'm going to show them just how bad they screwed up with me by, you know, turning their backs. And, again, we talked about it in the last episode. It doesn't take a major situation like starting a war between North and South Korea or England and China to get people interested and, draw, and you know, draw attention. It just takes something that you can understand, and everybody can understand being spurned by somebody because it's, it's happened to all of us at some point, whether we want to admit it or not. Somebody's turning their back on you, and you immediately wanted to show them, you know, you're going to turn your back on me, watch what happens to you now. It's true. Well, and for my money, when I was and, and, watching uh, it, when I was watching this uh, movie, I was sold on Silva being a great villain. He was going to be one of my favorites before we get to what I think is the, the peak of his, of realizing just how far gone he is and how evil he is and, and you know what's going through his mind and whatnot. After Anne has told him your name's coming off the wall, you're never going to have existed, we're going to lo lock you in a deep, dark hole and throw away the key. And she's turning around to leave when he gets her to stop, and you, do you know what hydrogen cyanide does to you? And he reaches into his mouth and pulls out that Brit. And he then and he looks at her, and now one side of his face is partially sunken in, his eyes more predominant, his teeth are black and broken, and... He looks like a monster for that one brief moment when he's just staring her and his mouth, you got this almost maniacal grin, kind of a grimacing smile as he shows these blackened, deadened teeth and they're melted because of, that's kind of what hydrogen cyanide would do to you. And they're sharpened and he looks very much like a movie monster in that one, in that moment before he puts it back in. That's and, the transformation of him being who he was and then telling him you no longer exist, he says, okay, this guy does no longer exist, but now Raul Silva exists. And yeah, now look at this. <laughs> this is what you created, in effect. And, and it's and exactly what it is. I also, in, I also enjoyed him lobbing grenades into Bond's ancestral estate. I, I love that scene because you could see how much he enjoyed it. That's, that's the thing that, again, I think separates a great villain from a good villain, is you don't have to you know, understand the motivation completely. You don't have to agree with it. But when you see that this guy is doing something that he believes not only is right, but he's taking pride and pleasure in it, and he gets that really sick look, that really puts him over the line of, oh, my God, this guy's a nut. I agree. I think that scene is, in a much more understated way, comparable to one from a foreign film, uh, Leon the Professional, when Gary Oldman oh, is walking Monroe. through a house conducting Mozart with a shotgun. Yeah. I mean, it's very different. He's... Uh, Silva is much less theatrical and much less animated, but you can see this is something he likes. He's enjoying this, and uh, the interplay between him and Bond is also phenomenal, which is something you hadn't had. Again, probably since Trevelyan, you hadn't had someone who, if he's talking with Bond, they're equals, and Bond understands that. I mean, one of my favorite lines from him is when he's in the London Underground. He pushes the radio button, and part of the wall blows up, and, you know, it's a radio, because, and... And Bond, it misses Bond. It doesn't come close to killing him. And he looks at him and says, I hope that wasn't meant for me. And Silva just smiles and says, no, but that is. And then the oncoming train that is now going to fall through the hole that he's created is revealed. Yeah, he, he, it, goes, it goes from his kind of simple revenge plot into him really just getting into this work and really just amping it up as it goes along, kind of showing a descent into madness. Yeah, he, he goes from, you know, the genius, and he's still a genius at the end of it, but especially at the end when he grabs, when he has the, he he gets, he finally gets to M, who's mortally wounded, and 
he had that great moment when he actually says, "Oh crap, what happened to you?" It's like I get if you've ever read the Rambo novel, the first novel, the sheriff kills Ram, shoots Rambo, or Rambo shoots the sheriff at the end and basically kills him. But he does it when he's really worn down and fatigued and his aim is wobbly and he shoots him and the next thing you read that goes on his head is, "Oh crap, I didn't want it to be like that." That's kind of the impression I got from this was, "Oh, I want I darn sure wanted to kill you and I was going to, but Somebody else basically did it at this point. So then he gets her and says, you know, kill us both and take us both out at the same time. I've succeeded in my revenge. If I can't kill you, I'm done now at this point. The same way kind of Javert's done after he realizes Jean Valjean doesn't necessarily deserve to be in prison type thing. He's ready to go out and then Bond comes in and kills. But his whole arc, I, I can't possibly say enough good things about that character, the way he was acted, written, shot, everything. Yeah, they they really just hit a home run in terms of the total package. We've talked about certain guys, their, their villain was written well, but necessarily the, the actor didn't deliver, vice versa in certain situations. This was one where everything came together and clicked, including the surrounding cast, which is just as important. And, you know, M. Yeah, you have the nerdy kid who looks over. like the new Q, well, the introduction of Q, I mean, Judy Dench actually getting to act as M, which was phenomenal. She's one of the best actresses of her generation, hands down. The great Ray Fiennes as... Now he, he had fun in that role. You can tell he had fun, and that actually came across very well. Everything clicks for this movie. It's it, it's one of the best Bond. It just also happens to have one of the best, in, in, my, in my opinion, the best Bond villain. And again, you know, a, a movie like this with a specific hero, he's only going to be as strong as the villain makes him. And... You know, Raul Silva, Javier Bardem, forces the hand of Bond to be as good as he can be, and as a result, the whole movie benefits from it. And, again, I think the the real sticking point of it is the motivation is there, the character is there, and he goes above and beyond and really goes for the whole package. And it, 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 he, he, he becomes this, this man and transforms into this monster, but he's a scary monster because he's one that's not based out of you know, science fiction or a lab accident gone horribly wrong. He's what can happen to a guy like Bond. He's that other side of the coin to the extreme. Trevlin was there. He was that other side of the coin, but not to the extent that this guy was. This guy became a madman with a lethal skill set and crazy assets at his disposal. does make you worry, though, for the next James Bond movie, because we have the, there's kind of the pattern of, Bad villain, good villain, bad villain, good. You know, you can only go down from Raul Silva, so it does kind of make you wonder what they're gonna, what the plan is for the next one. You know what? They can fix it. Well, they'll, they're going to cast a villain. It's going to be based on Jeff Harris, and it's going to be fantastic. <laughs> the angry person on the internet who James Bond now has to come after. That, that, He's going to be mixture of Jeff Harris and the angry video game nerd. There we go. That would work. Oh, wow. We actually went over time again, and I said this for the full hour. But, hey, when you have the great character and the great acting that Javier Bardem deserves, as far as this one we goes, do, I don't feel do bad about it at about all. Him. <laughs> we could have. We absolutely could have. Oh, So, anything you want to plug before we close this thing out, Pat? Uh, just keep tuning in every Sunday night to the 411 Ground and Pound Radio in case you're not sick of me and Robert yet, which hopefully you're not, because you can hear us every week on there, too, and Robert, anything you'd like to plug, such as Locked in the Guillotine or your upcoming appearance on Long Road to Ruin? No, those are pretty much it. Uh, this Tuesday, I will be on Long Road to Ruin again. Great podcast series hosted by Mark Radlitz and Sean Comer. We'll be talking about the Scream franchise, which 
should be interesting. We'll do the first two and then the last two a couple of weeks from now. I will be on the 411 Ground and Pound radio show this Sunday, as always, unless something comes up. I will, uh, I will of course, have locked in the guillotine next Friday. I didn't get a chance to talk about the the ass hattery of Nick Diaz, or Nate Diaz, not Nick. I'm so used to saying Nick Diaz, and Nate Diaz actually being something of a professional that I keep confusing them as far because Nate Diaz went and gaffed on Twitter, and now there's a whole to-do about it, apparently. Pat, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on this show. I hope you won't mind coming back again if something we plan on talking about strikes your interest. I would love to. Anytime, Robert. Uh, I will try to do one next week. I'm not sure which topic is going to be. I'm debating either evil corporations or uh, part of a series on Disney villains. It could go either way right now. I need to see if anyone's even interested in joining me for either of those. But as far as villainy podcast, the villain podcast, either Disney villains or we'll be talking about evil faceless corporations, both of which are great topics. I feel free to Very disagree. much the same thing. <laughs> not oh, the wait, company. You're not talking about Disney as a villain. If I ever do a real-life evil corporation, it's going to start with Disney and end with the UFC, and I'm going to have Sam Mercati on here, and we're going to tear it up. <laughs> oh, man, I would so listen to that. All right, so I hope you'll be back at some point in the future. You're always welcome on this show. If I ever make it a call-in show, but feel free to call in. I'm not sure if I will or not, but I might. You never know. I might have specific episodes that are. I'm still getting my feet under me as far as this goes, but it is fun to do. I've had great co-hosts so far. So for the man who used to write The Blueprint, Mr. Pat Mullen, always welcome on the show. Great guest for myself, the guillotine master, the villainous host. Remember, the light is as bright as the shadows allow it to be. Thank the villains around you because they make make the sweeter things that much sweeter. Have a good night, everyone.